This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Um, so, welcome everybody to Doing Translational Research. Um, this is our second episode since the pandemic. Um, and so I am once again recording from the basement of my house. Um, I'm Chris Wildeman. I'm your usual um, host for this program and director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Race- Research. I'm here today with um, my friend and colleague, Lauren Brinkley Rubenstein, um, who is at the School of Social Medicine at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I have a longer bio in front of me that I could read to sound more professional, but the, the thing I'll say is that, you know, Lauren is one of the folks who works in sort of the mass incarceration and health disparities field, who I think is simultaneously doing some of the best research and also really having the most transformative effect on society and the well-being of marginalized populations, um, so it, it's it's a it's a thrill for me to have you here, Lauren. And um, I hear that you have a um, even bigger um, engagement tonight in terms of um, recording. So thanks for thanks for making time for us. Well, that was very nice. Thank you. And um, yeah, this feels um, very um, good and familiar and less nerve wracking than um, talking to Senator. Bernie Sanders tonight. <laughs> so, so I'm actually going to try to make you super uncomfortable now that you said that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, so there are two kind of opening, totally random questions that I wanted to ask, and um, the first is, what is a school of social medicine? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of folks in the audience will not necessarily know what that is. So that's like the serious professional question. And then the not serious at all, not professional at all question is, if you could tell us in 90 seconds or less about the uh, ghost or ghosts in your house. Okay, awesome. I'm so happy to talk about both of those things. Um, So, right. So I think when I first came to social medicine, I also was unclear exactly what it was. Um, It's one of the only, there aren't that many of them. And it's in a medical school, which is kind of a strange place to have an interdisciplinary social science department, especially when you have a school of public health right across the street. Um, but at UNC, the Department of Social Medicine is um, a department that's made up of lots of different disciplines, lots of anthropologists. We have a political scientist, a historian. I'm a community psychologist. Um, and so we all think about the social aspects of medicine. And um, there's also a Center for Health Equity Research that's nested in the department. Um, and there, so there are some of us that really think about health disparities as the um, overarching framework that we use. And the um, the other cool thing about the Department of Social Medicine is that we have a, a teaching, a part, we're a part of the teaching mission um, in the UNC School of Medicine in that we, um, all of us teach a seminar course to first year medical students um, that really gives them an overview of racial disparities, gender disparities, bioethics, 
um, and things like that that they might not otherwise get in their medical school education and is really unique um, in that most medical students don't get it. Um, so that's that's what we do. Okay, and then the haunted house, um, right? So we bought a haunted haunted house in just I don't know a year ago, and someone died in it a couple of months before we bought it. Um, and so she is still hanging out there and mostly I think resides in the attic. Um, her name is Kim and, um, I think she, um, was maybe a pretty unhappy human being. And so I hope she continues to live with us and, um, is happier when we move in sometime in the next year. Okay. <laughs> so this is the first time on the podcast that we have talked about ghosts, um, or have had someone appearing with Bernie Sanders later in the day. So I feel like this has been I mean, an extremely successful podcast already, even if we don't yeah. get to anything about your research. <laughs> what, what an intersection. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, you know, I, I want to talk more broadly about your research, but I also want to make sure I pay attention to the time. And so one thing that would be interesting to hear about maybe in about five minutes or a little bit less is sort of this cool new project that you're working on, um, where sort of your interest in public health and your interest in, um, imprisonment intersect. Yeah. So the COVID stuff is that what yeah. we're... Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So, you know, in the last six weeks, all of, all of our active research was halted, um, because of COVID-19. And so we were unable to, as a lab, continued to see people, recruit people, follow up with people. And so we have about eight people um, who are employed by those various grants that didn't really have a ton of stuff to do. Um, and so when we began to think about COVID in the context of jails and prisons, um, we knew that there were going to be issues and that there was going to be widespread transmission inside of those facilities. And so we started um, pulling down data from state prison systems um, a long time ago and creating a daily archive and also um, a cumulative count um, of people incarcerated who have been tested, who have been confirmed positive, who have died, and then also looking at staff um, numbers of those same metrics. And um, as you can imagine, over time, the number of prison systems that were reporting grew and grew. And now we have about... I think it's up to, um, there's only one state left that's not um, reporting any data at all. Um, and uh, as of today, there are about 19,000 cases among people who are incarcerated, about 6,000 cases among um, people um, who are employed by prison systems. And um, there have been about 400 deaths uh, of people who are incarcerated and about 23 deaths of staff. Um, and so we're working with those data and we're watching it um, grow over time. We've also been working to um, you know, do some comparison to rates of both testing and cases um, of people who are in prison systems compared to the general population and looking at those disparities um, as they exist across various different states. We've also been using the data to, you know, make a call for transparency. Um, and so, you know, some of those systems that hadn't been reporting, we've been able to use with, uh, work with local news organizations to kind of press, um, you know, d local DOCs to, to, to begin reporting and, and been somewhat successful at that. Um, 
So that's what we're doing now. And um, we've, we've tried, we're working on some funding to try to get a web scraper uh, to, to automate that process for us so that we can focus more on analysis. And we also um, really want to expand it to jails. Um, so hopefully that comes through. And, and I think, you know, it'll be a really important um, data to have to watch case growth over time. Um, and, you know, just use to even prepare for wave two of COVID, which we expect in the fall. Um, so it's all really new, but I think fairly important and, um, you know, lots that we can do with the data and, and think it's also really meaningful. That sounds great. So what are the, I mean, slash horrible, great, like from an interesting and important perspective, horrible, um, from what the numbers show, I, what, I mean, what would your suggestions be in terms of how to contain outbreaks in correctional facilities? I mean, obviously there would be differences across security levels and across between jails and prisons, but are there sort of some general principles that you think folks should hear? Yeah, I think you're right. It, it's um, probably slightly different for jails versus prisons. I think jails in some ways have answered many of the calls that advocates have had um, primarily to release people that are pretrial detainees or who are you know, serving low-level sentences. And we've seen jails across the country engage in those types of reforms and let lots of people out. Um, yet we've still seen, you know, sort of the epicenter of the epicenter be first Rikers and then the Cook County Jail. Um, and so, you know, lots of people have let been let out, but the unique built environment of jails and prisons just really amplifies risk um, of transmission. Um, and, you know, you really just can't social distance in those facilities, no matter how many people are in there. Um, you also have staff coming in and out, right? And so they're if they're infected in the community, they're bringing it inside and then people can engage in preventative interventions like you could in the community. Um, so one, I think letting people out as much as you can. And then the other is just really widespread testing, um, mm-hmm. which has been a major problem. Um, and I know that there's a, this sort of general overlay of test scarcity that exists in the general population. So there are limited resources, but um, we, you know, at first we saw no testing at all. And now we've seen more robust testing, but really only after it's been very clear that there's an outbreak. So we saw that in North Carolina and we saw that in Tennessee and we saw it in Ohio. And once there's clear signs of an outbreak and you test everyone in your facility, we're seeing rates as high as, you know, like 80% um, infected. And at that point it's too late. Uh, So I think what we should probably be doing is treating um, prisons and jails like other other congregate living facilities. Um, You know, we have specific um, rules around testing for, uh, you know, like skilled nursing facilities. Um, So for the general population, asymptomatic testing is not um, preferred and the CDC doesn't recommend it. But they do say in other congregate settings, especially when you have one confirmed case, you should be. Um, testing everybody. And we are doing that in uh, a lot of, you know, nursing homes, but we're not doing that in a majority of um, prison and jail settings. And you have to ask yourself why. And the only answer I can come up with is, um, you know, the societal biases that we have related to 
deservedness, right? So we, we don't think that people or prison and jails deserve to be tested or taken care of in the same way that we do people who are in other types of congregate setting. And we really need to call attention to um, the fact that um, that, that is um, immoral to be dramatic, but I believe it. It's a reasonable time to be dramatic. Yeah. Um, and how... I mean, I guess we, you know, one of the things that you hear all the time and sort of kind of more mainstream criminology is about sort of the graying of the population of folks who are incarcerated. I mean, um, but the penal population is still really young relative to the general population. So I mm -hmm. guess how, how concerned are you about sort of older adults who are incarcerated relative to younger adults who are incarcerated? Sure. I think that's a good question. You know, I think 11% um, of people who are incarcerated are 55 or older. Um, so it is a small slice, but, um, in, you know, those folks are, uh, it, well, I think one thing to consider is that every facility is kind of different than every other facility. So, um, you know, sometimes the, the people who are older are just in the general population. And sometimes we have facilities that have um, a higher proportion of people who are at risk because they just have a, um, you know, they might have a hospital associated with that facility. And so I do think there's some, um, you know, facility by facility considerations based on contextual factors and also health risk of people inside. But, you know, the other thing in addition to an aging population is the fact that um, people who are incarcerated tend to, on average, have at least one chronic health condition. Mm -hmm. And so they tend, to, they tend to be, you know, um, you know, just have poor health outcomes in general, which, again, makes them, you know, more susceptible to severe suffering from COVID-19 and also acts as an increased risk of transmission from person to person. And so... Um, I think you're right that people who are incarcerated tend to be not older and younger, but they also tend to be more sick. Right. And have you, have you noticed any, sorry, I'm going to ask all the research questions now and then all the translational things yeah. later. Um, Cause I don't know that much about this project and it's like right in the area of stuff I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, so have you, have you noticed any difference in mortality rates in states where correctional facilities tend to be more isolated from major medical centers? Um, a, what a good question. Okay, so that's a great and timely question. My um, colleague, Catherine Nowatney, who has been doing this COVID prison project with me, who you might know, um, just did an analysis, not of that, that question exactly, but looking at... Um, death this year since COVID hit compared to, um, okay, I'm looking at this paper now, compared to um, death rates, you know, the last several years average. And I'm just going to pull up this table because what she found was that um, there, in essence, is a lot more death in the context of COVID. So that doesn't get to your question mm -hmm. exactly. Um, but there is definitely something going on with mortality above and beyond what we've seen in the past, really making the case that um, 
you know, COVID-19 is having a significant impact on mortality in prison um, settings in general. But what an important question to understand the geography of the prison and, um, you know, understanding what's happening to people um, after they're getting COVID, right? So our data really is just telling us in general how many people have it. But what we're not, and how many people die. So we're seeing that like final end point, that final outcome, but everything kind of in between and what might influence risk of death after you have it mm-hmm. is completely unknown and such an important missing part of the puzzle. Interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it does seem like you could do something with the deaths and correctional facilities recording program or whatever DCRP. I don't remember what the acronym is. Yeah. Um, so, ha. Okay. So, um, we have spent, uh, 16 minutes and 15 seconds roughly by my count on, um, ghosts and exclusively on research. So we should, we should pivot slightly more to the translational kind of component. I mean, I guess one thing that, I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit because I just have heard you be so successful in this domain is, you know, how, how do you work with community partners and especially a really varied group of community partners? Um, I think, and what are some of the tensions you notice? What are some of the ways in which you think um, it's important? It would just be, Yeah, just really nice to hear you kind of riff on that for a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, when we're doing, we try to work with stakeholders in lots of different ways and and using lots of different methods. And, you know, when we write a grant, we usually try to write in some um, investigation of stakeholder perspectives that act as context to, you know, the more quantitative findings that we might have. And so, um, you know, when we're looking at like big cohort projects that we have where we're collecting data on a group of people related to a particular health outcome. We always try to talk to people who are providing treatment in the community or who are, um, you know, criminal justice uh, administrators or people on the ground. And, you know, inevitably what we hear from those uh, various partners really does help us to think about what our results mean. Um, And sometimes what we hear from, you know, people in the community versus people who are in the criminal justice system can be, um, at odds. And so you have to add all that up together and think about um, what that all means. But we, we certainly try to build that in. And then, you know, the other thing that we've done fairly successfully as a group here at UNC is um, build collaboration with our um, Department of Public Safety, who, you know, is the overseer of the um, prison system here, and also um, probation and post-release. Um, and we've Um, you know, successfully gotten them to give us data that uh, nobody else has been able to get their hands on. And, um, you know, I'm talking about the solitary confinement data. And so, um, yeah, we've sort of, uh, it's been a journey though, because we, um, we have ongoing relationships with them. We got them to give us these really important data and then we were able to analyze it and we found things that didn't make them particularly happy at first Uh Um, but we were yeah but you know we worked it out together as a team and um we're really thoughtful about you know considering their perspective and the impact that um some sort of negative findings might have on them and um 
you know, so we did that in a number of ways wherein we let, you know, not let, but really encouraged people from the Department of Public Safety to be authors on our paper. Um, And we also presented preliminary results to them so that they could ask questions and think through interpretations and be prepared rather than sort of just being hit by a a JAMA paper that, you know, is in press. Um, (laughs) So we've had a lot of success because we value partners, um, you know, that are sort of uh, from very different um, walks of life and have very different perspectives from, you know, criminal justice stakeholders to people who have been incarcerated themselves. And we also try to build in that perspective, um, you know, to anything that we do as well. And, and then we triangulate our results using those, those um, different inputs, and then also work collaboratively with those partners um, to make sure that we're also being a powerful partner. Great. Well, um, I don't want to. I don't want to take up any more of your time, especially since it could be used for prep for the big show um, tonight. Um, but I just wanted to thank you for coming on the program, and it was great to chat with you as always and learn more about your new projects and your approach to sort of doing translational research. So, um, thanks again for joining us. And with that, I think we'll sign off. All right. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.